I want to begin just by sharing an experience I had this, this last weekend. Uh, I went to Costco with my two kids, which is not an uncommon thing to do. In fact, about once a week I make this trek with the kids. And there we were, uh, getting all of the things that my wife is texting me while we're there. Uh, and and with, a, with a full cart, we then start making our way to the checkout. And before we get there, my daughter Esther sees something that gets her attention. It's a bright, white, plush, unicorn backrest pillow. You know those, those big pillows that you lean up, it's got like the arms, and it was a unicorn. Uh, which is her love language right now, is unicorns. And so, so she had to see it. So I, I brought her over, and, and I was very clear. I said, okay, Esther, we are not going to buy this, right? But you can snuggle it, you can hold it. We'll just, you know, I thought in my mind, a few minutes, and then we'll head to the, the uh, you parents are laughing at me right now. Um, <coughs> so it came time to go to check out, and, uh, and I said, okay, it's, it's time to go. And it didn't take too long, probably about 4.2 seconds, until I realized it, it was not an option for Esther to leave Costco without this unicorn pillow. Like it, just, it wasn't on the table for discussion. Um, it also wasn't an option, in my mind, to leave Costco with the unicorn pillow. Uh, and what ensued was what began with a little kind of mild wine, uh, but quickly became a full-on tantrum. Um, and I, I mean like a head-turning tantrum. And it, it wasn't like two or three minutes and then, you know, then we're done. It was about 20 minutes, that felt like 20 years, of a very loud, very public, very visible tantrum <laughs> because this little girl found something that she wanted so, so badly. And, and you, know, you know when you're driving and uh, there's an accident on the side of the road and all the traffic slows down because people are looking, right? I forget, what do you call that? Rubbernecking or bottle? Like, whatever it is, that was happening in the aisle. <laughs> people were walking by with their carts. And you know, you know like an accident, you don't, you don't want to just like stare, but there's this gravitational pull of your head. I felt people's eyes on me. As they were walking by, it was like, uh, I'm like, I know you're looking at me. Don't, don't pretend like you're not. Uh, and, and here's the question. Here's the question on their mind during all of this. How in the world is this dad going to respond? That's, I'm sure, what they were wondering. Like, how is this guy, this poor guy, how is he going to respond in this moment? Uh, this morning, uh, we're, we're going to discuss and explore a text, a story in the Bible about a time when Jesus encounters a man who wants something so badly. In fact, it's an idol in his life. And I want to explore the question this morning, how does Jesus respond? How does, how does Jesus respond to this man? But also, how does Jesus respond personally to us, in the midst of the idols that we have. Uh, if you've been around the past month or two, you know we've been going through a series called In All the Wrong Places, where, where we've been exploring this 
tendency, this proclivity in the human heart to, to look for the love of God, that is, to look for something for which we were created, to know, to love, to serve, and to worship God, but to look for it in all the wrong places. And when we do this, when we look for the love of God, when we look for things that only God can give us in places other than God, these things become idols. They become false gods in our lives that ultimately we worship and are enslaved by. Our text this morning comes from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 10. We're going to look at verses 17 through 22. And typically, I like to read through the whole story before we begin, but this morning, I'd like to just slowly work our way through as we go. And so, before we begin, will you pray with me? Father, uh, we, we pause now. And we recognize that, uh, that you are present. You are present through your spirit. We also recognize that, that you, you want to perform surgery this morning, surgery on our hearts. Would you please soften our hearts? Would you open the ears of our hearts and our minds to hear what you might have to say to us? And, and would you please not let us leave this morning unchanged? Oh, we love you too, and we pray in your Son's name, by your Spirit. Amen. So our story begins, Mark 10, verse 17, with this. As Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, it's interesting the way that this gentleman phrased this question. And this, by the way, was not an uncommon question for rabbis in ancient Judaism to get asked. And yet, the very way that he phrased this question makes an assumption. It assumes that there there is a command or a list of do's and a list of don'ts that if we just had that, then that would be our ticket to eternal life, right? And he makes this assumption. And he likely imagines himself as a good person, a good person who is simply seeking some assurance from a religious professional, a religious expert, that his goodness at the end of the day will pay off in the life to come. And so Jesus responds, In verse 18, Jesus says, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Now, this probably is not the response that this gentleman was expecting. It seems that this man was coming to Jesus expecting probably a bit of a polite, uh, mutually deferential, uh, very civil theological conversation maybe keeping it at the surface, right? Not not getting too deep, just wanting to be reassured that yes, he in fact is on the right track. But you see, Jesus isn't interested in surface conversations. Jesus isn't interested in, 
in having a polite, theological, safe conversation. Jesus is interested in your heart. And so Jesus brushes aside all of the religious niceties so he can get to the heart of the matter because this is how he relates to us. He wants your heart. I, I remember when, when I first got married, uh, I inherited a backyard. Right? My wife had a house. We had a, a very small backyard. This is Phoenix uh, Desert. But we, there it was, 500 square feet. And, and when I first started mowing lawn, because I also inherited that job when we got married, uh, my wife very carefully explained to me that there are these certain weeds that grow. And, and if you want to get rid of them, you have to like pick them out, like at the root, right? Don't just mow over them. Uh, and so I, when I first began, I would, you know, pick them out. But over time, it's just easier just to mow over them. And so I, just, I started mowing over them. Because uh, it kind of looks the same as long as it's all even, right? And sure enough, after a few weeks, there were more weeds. And there were more weeds. And there were more weeds. And then I had to spend a couple Saturday mornings picking out all of these weeds that spread like wildfire. Because unless you get to the root of weeds, they're just going to stay there. And not only that, they're going to spread. See, this is how Jesus relates to us. He's, he's not interested in just having surface conversations, which is so easy to do. Isn't it? Jesus wants to get to your heart. He wants to get to the root of your life. And so he just dismisses the religious niceties. He says, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Now, now it's interesting because if you're anything like me, uh, if you've been around church for a while, and I know some of you have, uh, if you believe the gospel and believe that Jesus is Lord, then you know that Jesus is actually good. In fact, he's the divine son of God. And so why would Jesus, why would Jesus deflect something like this? Why would he say, whoa, why are you calling me good? Only God is good. Well, if you're familiar with the story of Jesus, then, then you will notice a pattern. See, Jesus is often directing praise and glory to God the Father. He's often glorifying the Father. Because not only, not only was Jesus the divine Son of God, he also came as the genuine human. See, Jesus came to show us what it looks like to be truly and genuinely human, which means he perfectly bore God's image. He reflected to the world God's character, and then he perfectly summed up the praises of creation to God. This is part of what it means to be human. So it should be no surprise that Jesus glorifies the Father. And it's interesting, what we find often throughout the gospel stories is not only Jesus doing this to the Father, but the Father also doing this, and then, and then when the Spirit comes, the Spirit does this as well. And so here in this story, Jesus says, hey, only, only God is good. But then if you recall Jesus' baptism, a voice comes from the heavens. A voice that says, this is my son, with him I am well pleased. Listen to him. 
right? He's glorifying the Son. He's saying, look at him, right? And then before the Holy Spirit comes, Jesus says, listen, I'm going to be leaving, but there's one who will be coming after me, a helper, an advocate, and that's a good thing that he's coming. He's pointing to the Spirit, right? And then the Spirit comes, and anywhere the Spirit is at work, people's hearts, the affections of their hearts are stirred toward Jesus. This is how you know the Spirit of God is present. When people begin longing for Jesus, begin turning to Jesus. And so what you have in the Father and the Son and the Spirit are these three persons constantly glorifying one another. And at the center of this dance is love. It's self-giving love. And so it shouldn't surprise us then when we look at Jesus and we see him glorifying the Father. Why do you call me good? Jesus answered, no one is good except God alone. But Jesus then continues. He says, you know the commandments. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. You shall not defraud. Honor your father and mother. Teacher, he declared, this man once again. Notice he doesn't say good anymore. Teacher, all these I have kept since I was a boy. See, this man wants to know what he must do to have eternal life. That's his question. And, and Jesus will have more to say. He will definitely have more to say. But for the moment, Jesus obliges him. He says, you know what? You want a list? You want a list of do's and don'ts? Okay, here's a good one. All right, it's the second half of the Ten Commandments. And so Jesus gives him this list. And yet, the man's response either shows us that he's disappointed, right, because Jesus didn't tell him anything he didn't already know, or, and I think this is more likely the case, or he's pleased because his estimation of his own goodness is confirmed by Jesus, or so he thinks, right? So here's this man who, if we're, if we're reading the story carefully, it seems like his, his self-righteousness is kind of starting to swell a little bit, right? Jesus says, hey, just follow these commands, and he says, oh, okay, yeah, I've, I've done all of those, okay, I'm, I'm good to go. And if, and if you're familiar with the story of Jesus, you know that, that one of the worst qualities or traits to have is self-righteousness, right? Jesus had his harshest criticisms for those, particularly those religious leaders who thought higher of themselves than they should. What we also haven't been told yet, but we will see soon, is that this man has something ruling his life that he doesn't even know. He has an idol in his life. And so here's this guy, right, who's beginning to be revealed as a bit self-righteous. We're about to discover that he has this idol in his life, and he has no idea. And the question looms, how does Jesus respond to him? How does Jesus respond? Jesus could have been annoyed with him, he could have snapped at him. He could have put him in his place. But this is what happens. Mark tells us Jesus looked at him and loved him. 
Jesus looked at him and loved him. Don't you love Jesus? Don't you love Jesus? See, it's at the point when this man's self-righteousness is most obvious, the moment when he appears most unlovable, most irritating, most flawed, most in need of correction, that Jesus looks at him and he loves him. There's a profound truth hidden at this point in the story. And it's a truth that I've experienced in my own life. See, the, the longer that I follow Jesus, the longer I'm a Christian, the more aware I become of how messed up I am. Like the, the more aware I become of my own brokenness, of my own sin. And, and my, my own sin, it's as if it, it gets bigger and bigger. And it's not that I'm becoming a worse person. I hope that's not the case. Uh, but it's my awareness. It's as if God keeps pulling back layers in my heart and saying, okay, but what about this? Right? And at the same time, the more aware I become of my own mess, the bigger God's love becomes to me. And in fact, there's an inverse relationship between these two things. The more I discover just how sinful I am, how selfish I am, much more than I ever thought, the more I realize that God still loves me and loves me so much more than I thought because none of these things surprise him. I, uh, when, when I first got married, again, uh, I learned a lot through my marriage. <laughs> when I first got married, it, it was as if my marriage was, gave me like a, like a full-length mirror. There was, this, there was this gift. It was like being married to me was like a full-length mirror. A full-length mirror, though, that, that showed me everything wrong about myself. Now, there's more to my marriage than this. I love, I love my marriage. It's a good thing. But, but one of the things that my marriage has taught me is that in the course of this relationship, and frankly, any relationship we find ourselves in, God's main purpose is not that I'd be happy. Although gladly I can say I am very happy in my marriage. No, God's purpose in marriage is that we might become holy. And part of that means having the humility to see those parts of our hearts and our lives that, quite frankly, I don't enjoy seeing. And so I thought, when I got married, that I was a really good listener. Turns out I'm not. Learned that pretty quickly. And so God just kept peeling these layers back in my life. And, and then my wife and I adopted our kids, and I became a parent. And there were even more layers. See, I thought I was very patient. Well, my, my son did not sleep from 1 a.m. to 5 a.m. this morning. Uh, that's just one example of many, many, many times God has shown me that uh, there's, there's still quite a bit of work he needs to do in my heart, right? He keeps pulling back these layers in my life, showing me things that I didn't know. And as he does this, he reminds me, and Michael, I still love you, right? I love you, and I, I know even more than you do about yourself. See the inverse relationship between our awareness of our own sin, our own brokenness, 
and our awareness of God's love and his grace in our lives. See, Jesus looked at this man in a moment when his his self-righteousness was growing. And all the while, he was harboring this idol that we're about to hear about. And Jesus loved him. I don't know what baggage you bring into this room this morning. I don't know where you might be looking for love. I don't know what idols you might have ruling in your heart. But I do know this. Jesus loves you. Jesus loves you. And it's precisely because he loves you that he wants to expose and replace the idols in your life, which is his intention with this man. Mark continues. One thing you lack, Jesus said, go sell everything you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. At this, the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. Wait, Jesus, are you serious? Like, isn't, like, isn't this a little bit extreme? Jesus, like, what, what in the world is going on here? And it's worth mentioning on the outset that this is the only individual in all of the Gospels, this is the only individual to whom Jesus asks this very thing. The only one who receives this specific command. And it's not that this is the only wealthy person Jesus ever interacted with. In fact, some of you may recognize the name Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus was a wee little man. I'm not going to sing the song if you're familiar with it. But he was a tax collector. Zacchaeus was a tax collector. And he was a, basically an independent contractor employed by Rome to collect taxes from the people of Israel, which was an occupied nation at the time. And Zacchaeus quickly gained a reputation for ripping off as many people as he could, gathering more money, taking more money than he needed in order for him to get wealthy. And then one day, He meets Jesus. And Jesus invited himself over to Zacchaeus' house. If you're Jesus, I guess you can can get away with that. Uh, And because of Zacchaeus' encounter with Jesus, he ended up saying, you know what? I am going to give half of everything I own to the poor. Right? And anyone that I have stolen from, I'm going to pay back up to four times. Right? This incredible act of repentance. And Jesus said, salvation has come to this house today. And yet, even in this instance, where there was this incredible transformation, Jesus didn't make the same ask of this man that he did Zacchaeus. So what is going on here? I mean, you can guarantee that the the disciples are probably shocked. I'm just thinking of Judas and Peter, who are probably like, Jesus, don't don't scare this guy off. He could could be beneficial, right? He could be a good donor. See, Jesus is interested in the heart. And so, he gives him a command. And in doing so, Jesus does two things. The first thing he does 
is that he exposes this man's idol. Despite all the good things this man had done, Jesus tells him he must give up the one thing, the one thing that mattered most to him, his wealth. The thing that, that he had been clinging to, the thing that he had given space on the throne of his heart to. Because this, see, this man did not understand the depth of his problem. There was something in his life more important than knowing, trusting, and following Jesus. It's an idol. And so this man left Jesus saddened. We're told that his face fell. And listen, because Jesus loves us, he wants to expose in the same way the idols in our life. And so let me ask a few questions. I've got a slide here coming up in a moment. And these, these things here are all really good things in God's creation. Good things that, if given a particular place in our heart, can easily become ultimate things. And so let me just ask a few questions this morning as a sort of diagnostic of idolatry. What are your daydreams? What are your daydreams? What are those things you sit around dreaming about? Where do your uncontrollable emotions show up? Where do your uncontrollable emotions show up? Where do you spend your money most effortlessly? What are your nightmares? The things that you fear most? What unanswered prayer has caused you to resent God? See, Jesus, just like with this man, he wants to expose the idols in our hearts because he knows that we all will worship something, we will all serve something, and if it's not God, then it will be something else that enslaves us. And so he seeks to expose the idols in our lives. But notice what he does with the man. He also seeks to replace it. Right? He didn't just say, stop putting your trust in your wealth. No, he said, come and follow me. And the key to replacing idols in our hearts is not simply that we get the right information in our heads, but it's, it's that the very desires of our hearts would be changed. That when we look at Jesus we see a God whose love is so great and so powerful that, that we are actually changed at the very motivational structure of our lives. So, so there I was in Costco, okay, in the aisle with my kids, a lot of people coming by. The big question was, how is this guy going to respond? And I can say proudly, I did not cave. I, I did not buy this pillow. Uh, and it took about 20 minutes, 20 solid minutes to get, to get my kids out. And it wasn't pretty. I mean, uh, the walk from the register to the ticket, you know, the, the receipt lady, I had was pushing the cart with one hand. I literally was holding Esther like a sack of potatoes and she's screaming and crying and we're going. But we made it out. But as I think back on this experience, two things come to mind. 
The first is the moment that I took the pillow out of her hands. It was, it was as if I had just killed something. <laughs> it was this such incredible pain. Right? The second moment I remember is after coming home, things had been settled, sitting down and saying, Esther, can we talk for a minute? I want to just talk a little bit about what happened at Costco. And her looking up at me and then just running into my arms and just hugging me and holding me. Right? Do you, do you see that Jesus doesn't simply want to expose the idols in our hearts? He wants to replace them. Replace them with something, with someone who will never, ever disappoint us. I want to end this morning with a prayer. And it's a prayer that I, I'm going to pray in the first person, but I, I invite you, to the extent that it applies to you, I, I invite you to, in your own heart, pray this prayer with me. Please pray with me. Dear God, I confess that I have looked for love in all the wrong places. I've turned good things into ultimate things. I've loved the gifts more than the giver. And I am sorry. Please forgive me. Remind me that anything I love more than you will always let me down. But you will never let me down. Remind me again how much you love me. Remind me of the incalculable price you paid for me on the cross. Remind me of how you are so much better than anything this world has to offer. Please sit on the throne of my heart, Lord. Then I will be filled with joy, gratitude, 